0: But we're doing a little mini two-week sort of series, a little uh, mini-series on stories that Jesus told, Um, and we refer to these as parables, and the thing with Jesus' stories is that they are, in some ways, different from any other stories. Um, He didn't, didn't, uh, when Jesus was here living on earth, he didn't write systematic theologies, uh, he didn't preach in a seminary, he didn't write academic papers, he told stories. The kind of stories he told are the kind that sort of stick with you for a while. Um, You think you have not figured out, and then the more you look into them and the more you peel back the layers, the more you're like, man, I really don't know what's going on here. They're sort of annoying in that way. Jesus told, like, annoying stories. And I like to think of them as kind of Holy Spirit time bombs. Um, After You know, it might be a day, it might be a week, it might be a month later, but a a new insight will come, and the Holy Spirit will be like, boom. There's, that's what that story meant. And you're like, oh, that's right. So um, I think the parables work that way. And so it, it, they, uh, they encourage constant revisiting. So no matter how many times you've heard one of Jesus' stories, there's always more for the Holy Spirit to teach us and show us. So last week we looked at Jesus' most famous one, probably, the prodigal son, which is really a story about three gospels and a prodigal God. Um, but today we're going to look at Jesus' probably Jesus' weirdest story, Okay. Uh, it's the one that makes the least sense on the surface. So I'm going to read, it's the next one right after the prodigal son. It's in Luke 16. I'm going to read the first eight verses of Luke 16, and, uh, and then we'll jump into it. So Luke 16, 1 through 8. He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, A 100 measures of oil. And he said, take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master uh, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Uh, Let's pray and ask Jesus to help us navigate this one. All right, Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. We know that uh, it can sometimes be difficult and unclear, but we know that it's always good. And so we ask that as we unpack this together this morning, you would encourage our hearts to trust you more. Uh, You'd be at work in our lives through your word and through your spirit. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right. So this is a story about a pretty slimy guy, the dishonest manager. This guy is getting fired because he's no good at his job. All right. He was accused of wasting his boss's possessions, and he has nothing to say for himself when he's confronted by his boss. Uh, when he hears about his upcoming firing, he quickly goes to his boss's clients and reduces the debt that they owe his boss, some by 50 some by 20%. And he loses his boss significant amounts of money. These are not small transactions, and he does this on purpose. And he does this to gain favor with the townspeople, so that he has a softer landing after he gets fired. Okay, so this is not a good guy. This is something like if you are a barista at a coffee shop and any time one of your friends come in, you're like slipping them free coffee all the time. Like, you have a lot of friends, but you're basically just stealing from your boss all the time, right? except you're not a barista at a coffee shop, you're a dealer, you're like a dealer at the Ford um, exchange, right? And so, it, you're, or you're, you're, you work at Tiffany's Jewelry, right? And you're giving your friends massive discounts on huge amounts of money, and you're stealing from your boss. These are major transactions. Uh, scholars think that the amount that he took off each of these bills for his clients was about a year's wages. So let's say somewhere in the neighborhood of $50,000 each, just like Change that. Take $50,000 off your debt. Um, so we read this, and we think the Bible has got to speak against this behavior, right? I mean, uh, if we know anything about the Bible, we know it approves of honesty and forthrightness. It approves of, um, of staying uh, living above the bar. It condemns dishonesty. The Bible teaches us how to live, the good way to live, the right way to live. I mean, one of the Ten Commandments is literally do not steal, Alright, so the Bible has to speak against what this guy is doing. Yet all of the assessment in, of his behavior in Jesus' story is positive. The boss, the boss who the money is stolen from, in verse 8, it says, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. It's like, good job, man. That was sneaky. Way to go. And Jesus' closing assessment of his behavior is that the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. In other words, Christians, be more like this guy. Like, this guy's got something figured out that you need to figure out. So my question for us this morning is really simple. One question, what the heck is going on? Okay? So, uh, how do you explain this bizarre story from Jesus? Um, It's been such a tricky parable to navigate over the years in Christian history that a lot of people have just tried to get out of it, try to explain it away. So uh, there is an opponent of Christianity in the early, or in the fourth century, in early Christian history named Julian, and he cites this story as evidence that Jesus is teaching his followers to be liars and thieves, and that any noble Roman citizen would run away from being a follower of Jesus. All right? There are modern voices saying something equivalent uh, that the church. And that Jesus and the church that he built has been a negative influence on the world, right? That it's uh, been more trouble than it's worth. That it has been, um, it's had terrible influence. And the faster we can move on from Jesus, the faster we can move on from Christianity, the better the world will be. Uh, there have always been voices saying this sort of thing. And yet, we find the church continuing to grow in influence. We find Jesus never abandons his people. He may go out of fashion in a few places locally every once in a while, but globally, Jesus has never gone out of fashion. He has only increased in um, popularity, in worship, in honor, and it will always be that way. Okay, the church is here to stay. There are others who uh, respond to parables like this, parts of the Bible like this, who want to, they want to hear Jesus out. They like most of what Jesus says. But there's a few sort of like, troubling pieces of what Jesus says, right? The, the difficult passages, the hard stuff, this parable included. And so some people want to kind of edit the Jesus that we find in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, most of it's really, really good. Love your neighbor as yourself. Even love your enemy. It's beautiful. But, like, when we get to some sort of odd passages, well, maybe he didn't really say that, or maybe we can kind of edit that out. Um, this is a bit of a side note, but it's probably uh, worth taking just a minute on. Um, uh, sorry, um, this way out of that difficulty won't fly either. Um, the New Testament, especially the four Gospels that we have that tell us about Jesus' life Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John um, are the single most historically accurate and reliable documents that we have from the ancient world. And it's not even close. So, what we have written in the Bible is what the original authors wrote. And it's what Jesus said. So I studied philosophy in undergrad at University of Missouri. And, I, um, and so that one of my assignments was to read Plato, right? Plato's Republic. And so we get assigned this book. Uh, everybody picks up Plato. And nobody doubts that what we have in our hand is what Plato actually wrote. I mean, professors don't doubt it. Students don't doubt it. We read it as Plato's words. Um, and we have good reason to. Plato wrote about 300 B.C., or a little, little even before that. And so it's within three, four hundred years of when the New Testament was written, similar era, ancient world. And we have seven copies of what Plato wrote. And so we can verify this is his words. We can cross-check. We know we're reading Plato. Um, That's pretty good evidence. That's pretty reliable. Seven full copies from the ancient world. The Bible has 5,600 copies from the ancient world. I mean, this is incredibly historically reliable, documented. What we have written in our modern English Bibles, is what the ancient authors wrote, okay? There's a lot of scholars out there who are going to claim otherwise. There's a lot of weird ways they try to explain, Jesus probably said this, maybe said this, didn't say that. What we have written in our Bible, we can trust, okay? It is the most reliable ancient document ever written. Uh, And yet, people continue to question it all the time, and in a lot of reasons, because of passages like ours this morning. Jesus said some hard things. Okay? And he said some weird things. And he said some things that aren't always easy to understand. But he said these things. Uh, you can choose to believe that Jesus' stories aren't true. You can choose to believe that he's wrong. But it's not really intellectually responsible. It's not a reasonable view to take that he didn't say the parts of the Bible that you don't like or understand. Okay? The words of the Bible are trustworthy. And he said hard things. He told this story. You can disagree with him, doubt him. You can not even really like him that much. That's all fine, uh, but you can't ignore him, and you can't dismiss him. All right? You don't have those options. Not intellectually responsible. So, that's my side note. It's over now. We can get back to the passage. Uh, if you're even, I, I work at a university, right? At a secular university. So, like, this is uh, this. These are sort of the waters I swim in sometimes. But um, so I have little hobby horses now and again, and I take them. When I can take them. Uh, but we'll get back to the passage. If you're even moderately interested in what the historical Jesus had to say, if you think it carries implications for your life, uh, we've got to wrestle with this passage. No shortcuts, no punts. So, what's he getting at here? Uh, the way I want to go for this is I want to comb back through the story one time, and I want to point out a few nuances I think really open its meaning for us. And then we're going to look at two ways that this strange surprising parable continues to apply to our lives today. So let's take a closer look. This man is described as a manager. Uh, other versions translate him as a steward. Basically, he's middle management in a big corporation, right? So he, his boss would have been the owner of a big estate, and his boss is described as a rich man. Uh, the manager basically ran operations for him. He was his middleman. He was the one who collected rent, he kept the books, he ran errands, he interacted with his boss's clients, um, and he had relationships with all the people that his boss did business with. And most importantly, when he spoke, he spoke on behalf of his boss. Okay? So he went out into the community and he carried the authority of his boss with him. When he spoke, it was as if his boss was speaking. And he abused that authority. He had apparently been scraping some off the top for himself, right, a little side bank account in the Cayman Islands, like, my boss won't miss that, Uh, just keep a little bit for myself, kind of retirement plan. He's stealing from his boss, and his boss finds out, and he's fired, obviously. So now the manager has a couple options. He's caught red-handed. He could beg for mercy, but he doesn't do that. Uh, He could claim that these things are false. He could sue his boss for defamation. He could, like, take this to the courts. Doesn't do that either. He just, like, sees the writing on the wall and quietly leaves the room. Uh, verse 4 is the crux on which this story turns. The, the man, this, the steward, the manager says, I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. How could he Make such, a, make such a firm, clear decision about his path forward? How did he know what his plan was as soon as he got caught? Uh, I want to propose to you it's because he sees the future, right? So he says, when I'm removed, there's no doubt in his mind how this is all going to go down. He knows he's going to get fired. He knows he's going to lose his job. And so he has a, a highly clear view of the certain future that awaits him, Right? and his impending future brings clarity to his present situation. So he quietly leaves the room, without saying anything to his boss, knows his certain future, knows he will be fired, but he knows that he has one card left to play, and that is he still has those books. He still has all the accounting, he's got, a, he's got to turn it in, but he has them for a few more hours, and he speaks on behalf of his boss anytime he interacts with his clients. So, he has the books, and he has a plan. It's a high-risk plan, but it's a high-reward plan, too. This is high-stakes poker he's playing. He's all in. And in the pot is his reputation, his future, any chance he has to provide for his family. He's all in on this plan. And this plan's actually pretty brilliant. All right, this is a slimy guy, but you got you to hand it to him. Like, this is smart. Look at what he does. He calls a couple of the high-end clients of his boss to a private meeting, first guy. Now, what do you owe my master again? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Here, I speak for him, remember? I carry his authority. Um, Why don't you rewrite that? Make that a little less. Why don't you cut that in half? That should save you a couple years' worth of mortgage payments, right? Um, Isn't my master a generous man? Wink, wink, yeah? Very good, see you later. Okay, next guy comes in, second guy. What do you owe my master? Here, I speak for him, remember? Rewrite that, take 20% off the top. That should save you at least a year's tuition on that fancy school that your daughter's going to next year. Isn't my master a generous man? Wink, wink. So privately, the, the clients and the manager are all complicit in this theft. But publicly, they can still sort of claim that they are upright, right? Because who knows? Maybe the master really did approve these reductions in debt. The manager speaks on his behalf. It's a pretty brilliant plan. They all knew exactly what was going on. Um, both the clients could go back to town and start spreading the word, the incredibly good news that the generous, benevolent master of the estate, the one who employs at least half the town, the economic generator of the whole region, their benefactor, their employer, was even more generous than they all thought, right? The word spreads. A party breaks out. Why not? Thousands of dollars have been reduced from the debt of this entire town. Uh, just erased like that at the stroke of a pen. Let's open a case of the good stuff. Let's crack the valve on the fire hydrant, right? Someone grab the speakers, someone fire up the grill. Like it's a block party on the spot. The whole town is celebrating the quote unquote generosity of the master that this dishonest manager has fabricated. It's a pretty brilliant plan. And the dishonest yet incredibly shrewd manager comes strolling into his boss's office, probably whistling got the books in his hand, smile on his face, he says, here you go, I'll be done now. What's his master going to do? How does the boss respond to that sort of behavior? Well, he's put his boss in a tight spot. Here are his options. The boss could call everyone back into his office, along with the town sheriff, and set this all straight, right? All the debt goes back on the books. Uh, though, uh, his, his manager goes to, da- to jail. He could correct the debts. Um, and he could kill the party that's raging downtown right now. Uh, He could do that, or he could forgive the debt and let the party roll on. Do you see how the manager has put him in this tight spot? He's sort of betting on the generosity of the master. So he uh, he could kill it all now, or he could enjoy this increased reputation he has as a generous man. He could let the town continue to sing his praises for years. He could uh, let his manager walk out of the room with his head held high, even though he's for sure still fired, right? Doesn't have to work for the guy. He could do all of this, but only if he's willing to forgive the debts that his master put on the books. Only if he bears the cost uh, for his his manager's shenanigans. It's not a small cost. It's a lot of money, years and years of wages, but it's a cost he can cover. So what's he going to do? We're not actually told how the boss, how the master, responds to the managers uh, putting him in this tight spot. Is he going to call everybody into his office, kill the party, kill his reputation as a generous man? Or is he going to bear the cost, because at the end of the day, he really is a generous man, and reap all the rewards that the townspeople will give him for believing that? We're not told, but it's also not hard to guess which way this story goes. And then to close it out, Jesus commends the dishonest manager's wisdom, his foresight, his insight into human character. Because there's two things the manager really understood. First, he knew the future. Okay, He saw it with clarity. He saw it with certainty. He knows what's going to happen to him in the near future. And he acts quickly and with conviction and at great risk in light of that certain future. He knows he's going to get fired. There's no time to waste. Here's what I need to do in response to the future I know is coming. And he was all in. But second, he knew that his boss was actually a generous man. Right? He, he saw into the heart of his master, and he knew that this wasn't just a, like a 50-50 chance. He knew that given the choice, his boss would probably go the generous, kind, merciful, forgiving route. He, he'd worked for him long enough. He knew him well enough. After all, his boss could have just thrown him into debtor's prison along with his whole family the second that he found out about all the mismanagement, but he was just going to fire him. So he had these hints. He had these clues that his master was really a generous man and he wasn't out to see people hurt. He, w- he was out for fairness, but not for vengeance. And so what did he do? He bet on that generosity, right? He, he sort of leveraged the generosity of his boss. Um, put him in a tight spot so he could reap the benefits, uh, but only if he was actually right about the heart of his boss. Okay, so Jesus praises the man on his shrewdness, wisdom, and insight. Uh, and here's the, cr- here's the key to this whole parable, I think. Uh, I think I understand this parable. I'm not sure. I'm giving a sermon on it. Let's hope I know it. But l- you never know. This is one of those parables like, Jesus' parables are like this sometimes. But um, I think this is the key. The morals of the tale are not the point. Jesus is not commending dishonesty. He's not commending lying and reducing debt and stealing. He's not commending mismanagement in the books. What's he commending? He wants us to emulate this man's shrewdness. Specifically, Jesus wants us, um, or Jesus praises this man for leveraging the generosity of his boss in light of his certain future, okay? Betting on the generosity of his master in light of his impending future. And then he turns it on the listeners, verse eight. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Basically, Jesus is saying, are you that wise? Are you that insightful? Uh, Are you that certain of your own future? Are you that willing to go to great risks and with great clarity and conviction to bet on the generosity of your master? Do you live with the shrewdness, the insight, and the conviction that this man lives with? So in the time we have left, I want to consider those two questions um, that Jesus is prompting us to ask from this story. Do you live in light of your certain future, and do you leverage the generosity of your master in your own life? All right? So first, do you live in light of your impending future? If it's not clear by now, you and I in this story are the manager. All right, Jesus wants us to see ourselves there. He wants us to, to put ourselves in his shoes. We might think that we're killing it, like we've got life figured out. We might think that we're failing it, that we don't know anything about how to go through our lives. But either way, according to God's books, we have not managed the account that we've been given very well, right? Uh, we are sinners, serving ourselves with God's resources, wasting God's wealth and His uh, on on our glory, on our own glory, on our own comfort, instead of growing His account, making His name great in all the earth. We're siphoning off God's resources for our own selfishness, right? This is the heart of sin. Like all that we have is a gift from God. How do we use that gift? How do we use that account that we've been given? Well, we use it on ourselves. This is the story the Bible tells us. We deserve to be fired, to say the least. We deserve to be thrown out of town. We deserve to be locked away in debtor's prison, just like this manager. But in God's great mercy, he didn't demand that we repay all that we've mismanaged and that we stole. Instead, what does does God do, our master do, in response to our mismanagement? He covers the debt, right? He underwrites all that we have wasted by sending his son to cover the expenses on our account that we've mismanaged. Uh, He covered the debt out of his own wealth. He paid the price of our sin by sending his son Jesus to endure the prison, the debtor's prison, that we really do deserve. And here's the thing about Christianity. Like, The the beautiful story about Christianity is that he doesn't just cover the debt, but then he goes and he, like, fills our bank account with the riches of heaven. I mean, the riches of heaven are poured out to the children of God. He said, you are co-heirs with Christ. Everything Christ owns, you own with him. It's not portioned up. You own what Christ owns. So, applying it back to this story, the manager's horizon, his future... Uh, was the extent of his earthly life. He was trying to get a soft landing for the next 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it was. Um, His future only went that far down the road, but he was excellent at living in light of his certain future, wasn't he? I mean, he was shrewd. He's like, I'm in bad shape here. For the next 30 years, how am I going to land in this town? Got it. And he did whatever was necessary in light of his certain future. Jesus is saying to his followers, uh, do you realize your future in me? Like, do you realize the extent of the riches of the future that I have secured for you in my kingdom? I've not merely saved you from a life of debt. I've secured a future of riches for all who believe in Jesus. I mean, just some of the promise, just a handful of promises from Jesus to you this morning, okay? Just a few, just handpicked four. Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you We'll see it through to completion. Jesus is saying, I will start what I finished in you. You will be entirely whole, entirely healthy, entirely perfect, because that's what I do for my kids. Psalm 23, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will be with you. Jesus is saying, you are never alone in my kingdom, in my family. Right? These are the riches of the promises of the kingdom of God. John 14 I'm preparing a place for you in my Father's house. Everything I have is yours. You will be with me forever. Ephesians 2, I'm building you communally into a holy temple. You will always be connected to my people. You will always have family. You will always have friends. I will be among you and in you and working through you forever. You, The temple imagery, you are where I interact with the world. That's what the temple was. That's where the presence of God came You are my presence in this world. And these are just like four promises taken at random from the Bible. We could go through 30 if we had an hour and a half, which we don't. Don't worry. Um, But the riches of our certain future in Jesus are just like, I mean, they just keep pouring in. If you and I really grasp the immensity of the certain future we have in Jesus, it would knock us on our backs. Like we wouldn't be able to stand up under the waterfall of the outpouring of the gifts from God. So the question this is asking, is prompting us to ask, how would your life be different now if you knew with the clarity and the certainty and the conviction that this man knows his future? How would your life be different now if you knew with the certainty and the clarity and the conviction the future that awaits you with Jesus? You would say, I've decided what to do along with the manager, wouldn't you? But you wouldn't say, I've decided what to do uh, since I'm removed from management. You'd say, I've decided what to do today so that when I'm made whole and complete, not lacking anything, I can enjoy those good gifts from God. You'd say, I've decided what to do today so that when the power of sin is no longer at work in my life, I'll live with great freedom and joy, right? It's the certain future being pulled back into the present and shaping the way we live. I've decided what to do today so that when all the wrongs in the world have been made right and justice reigns over creation, I'll know that God used me to build his kingdom on earth, and I'll reign with him forever there in heaven. Jesus says don't live in light of the next two to five years of life planning. Don't live in light of the next 20 to 40 years of retirement savings. I mean, do that, but don't just do that, right? Don't live with such a short horizon. Don't be slightly shrewd. Be eternally shrewd. Uh, Live with the clarity and the conviction of your certain future in Jesus and let that eternal future shape your present now. All right, so maybe a bit more practically. What would a life lived in light of that certain future really look like? Well, here I want to propose that it would look a lot uh, like the life of our manager, leveraging his certain future, betting on the the generosity of, of his master. Okay, the dishonest manager did a quick calculation. I will get fired. This is a fact. This is my future. But I know the man who pulls the strings. I know if I can take a great risk to put him in a position for his generous heart to shine, I've got a pretty good idea how that's going to fall for me. Right? This is a big bet he's putting down. Um, if I can make him choose between being kind and gracious or harsh and committed to the letter of the law. I think I know where his heart will go. He risked everything on that intuition, on that guess, on that like, yeah, seventy thirty. I bet he'll go generous, but I might not. I might get the short end of the stick, and I might be in debtor's prison forever. Right? He was laying down his life on the bet of a generous heart of his master. His hunch is confirmed, probably. Lucky for him. You and I have to don't don't have to make any sort of a guess or a hunch. Or an intuition we have been shown exactly how deep and far and wide the generosity of our master extends in the world and in our life you are already wealthy beyond any wealth available in this world we don't have to skim off the sides to save up for a rainy day paul tells us we're heirs with christ the riches of his estate are ours jesus is calling his people to make even bigger bets and live with even greater conviction and even greater clarity um, based on the generosity of our God because it's limitless. So, what does it mean to leverage the generosity of God in our lives? Like practically, what does it mean to bet that God's heart and his words are true for us today? I actually wish I had a lot better answers to that question in my own life, right? I mean, part of it means sometimes doing things that only make any sense in the world if God's words really are true. Like from any other perspective, this would be insane, but well, God says it's true, so let's do that, right? I mean, part of betting on the generosity and the mercy and the grace of God is living our lives in light of his words, and he tells us he tells us that it's, it's better to give, to live lives of generosity, than to receive. Um, how do we take him to the bank on that? How do we put him in a position where his word is on the line, where his true hearts and, and, and the character of his heart can really shine in our lives and in the world? Well, maybe it's answering questions like this. What are some resources, talents, and gifts? What are the riches? That God has put in your account that He intends for you to generously give to those around you. Doesn't have to be money, can be money. How are you wealthy, though? There are lots of kinds of wealth. Um, something that I've been intrigued by lately is how you can use humor generously and graciously. Uh, how do you uh, make jokes and um, kind of interact with people in a way that doesn't make you the center of attention and steals glory, but actually? diffuses tension, makes things less awkward, makes it more comfortable and hospitable for others. Uh, If you are wealthy in humor, I'm jealous of you, first of all, but second, how do you use that as a gift from God to extend his riches to the world? Um, How can you be generous emotionally? How do you give away your sensitivity, your emotional stability, your joy, even your sadness in a way that's gracious to others, that meets them where they're at, That doesn't demand they come to you emotionally first, that walks alongside others through what they're going through? How do you be generous uh, with space, with time, with your hospitality? Um, These are all the sorts of questions I think this parable is prompting us to ask. Um, God has a heart, a deep and wide and long lasting heart that we will never reach the bottom of, right? And his heart is a heart of generosity, and it's a heart of grace. And this parable is prompting us to ask, how do I put bets down on that generosity? Like, How do I live my life in a way where I have to rely on God's generosity in me and through me for the world? Because here's the point, you can't outgive God. Whatever you give away, you're leveraging the generosity of your master who promises that it's better to give than to receive, And that to whoever much has been given, um, much more will be given as well. So take him up on the word. Test him. See how deep that bank account goes. See how kind and gracious and good the heart of God really is. Bet on his generosity um, by being deeply generous to those around you. And the Bible promises that as we place those bets on him and leverage his heart of goodness and mercy, we will never be disappointed. We will always come out on the right side of that bet. It is not a risk, right? It's not a 50-50, it's not a 70-30. This is a 100% certain future um, that we can bank on. That's the gospel. Fun parable, huh? Super weird, right? Um, but it's so insightful and so challenging and so gracious and so, so kind of like upside down. It's all just so Jesus. So um, let's close in prayer and we'll, uh, we'll turn to his table. Heavenly Father, We thank you for this really weird story. Um, We thank you that you are creative and surprising. We thank you that um, we can read your word for the rest of our lives, and there will always be things um, that shock us and amaze us and surprise us because your gifts just keep on flooding in. Um, And we thank you for your generous heart. We thank you for the forgiveness that we've received in your son Jesus. We thank you that he has not only cleared the debt in our account, but has filled it with the riches of heaven. Uh, We ask all of these things in your name this morning. Amen.